a Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Matthew O'Kine is a multi-award-winning stand-up comedian, actor, author and radio presenter. Best known for hosting the Triple J Breakfast Show in his TV series The Other Guy, Matt plays to sell out audiences around the world with his ever-popular comedy shows. Mate, what's your favourite Five of My Life story so far? Kate's was incredible. Kate McClellan. Oh, thank you. No, seriously, it, uh, every single thing that Kate said it just connected with me. I mean, such an incredible story about the loss of her brother and her parents. Um, and, you know, I really loved that... You know how she sort of reiterated the idea that life is not fair. You know that just because something bad happens, she doesn't mean that you're suddenly immune for the next, you know, five years. It, it, it's it's like the pokies. You know what I mean? Just because a, a, a win happens, doesn't or just because a, a machine hasn't won for a long time doesn't mean it's due for one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and some awful tragedy doesn't give you a free pass. No, exactly. So, yeah. um, and, and you know, and that sort of mentality is certainly I've fallen victim to at times in in thinking, oh well, you know, certain things have happened to me, so therefore I'm you know in the clear. Or at the opposite end, you think, oh God, life's been a little bit too good for me for a little while. What's going to happen? You know, is it going to be my health? Is it going to be money? What's it going to be? So, um, no, everything resonated with me a lot. So I really appreciated what she had to say. And also just the story. Her story and her career is so impressive and interesting, you know? Oh, I'm so glad you liked that episode. Well, one of my favourite quotes is from Homer Simpson when Bart is sitting on at the doorstep and he's had the, just the worst day. And he goes, Dad, today has been the worst day of my life. And Homer sits down next to him, puts his arm around his shoulder and goes, the worst day of your life so far. <laughs> <laughs> it can get worse, Matt. <laughs> anyway, we're we're going to start with your film. Uh, and you have chosen Dora and the City of Lost Gold. Probably, you vain, vacuous celebrity, because of your scene-stealing <laughs> two-second cameo. Yeah, yeah, I am. I play science teacher in the Dora <laughs> movie. Um, and that is my character's name. It, it's it's definitely um, well known throughout the industry that if your character's name is a job title... <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to be high up the credits list, let's put it that way. Um, but I did have one one line in it. And do you know why I um, I chose this movie? Because of everything that was happening to me around that film. Um, and it was such um, just an important time in my life, really. So I was writing the second season of... Um, my TV show, The Other Guy, I was writing my debut novel and my partner was pregnant. She was about three months pregnant when I was writing it and um, when I was doing all of that stuff. And, you know, when you're waiting, when you're, when you're waiting to become a parent, it's that, it's that, you know, just waves of emotion and ups and downs and the fear about what 
whether you can actually do it, whether you can be a parent, um, the excitement, you know, to think that I, that I was so excited by the thought that my daughter might like, might watch this movie one day, you know, really soon and, and, and see and just, and be a part of it. And there was some really, really beautiful things I took away from the film. One of the, one of the things I don't want to spoil it, but at, at the, towards the end, there is some sort of, um, flash mob style thing. And, um, it's this song in sort of half in Spanish. And I remember learning it in Adelaide on a, on a, um, you know, in my earphones while I was flying from this conference gig I was doing up to the Gold Coast, which is where it was filmed. And after I filmed this scene, it's all this big dancing scene. My partner was like, so what did you have to do today? Cause you know, it's, it's what, what, what the hell is science teacher doing in Dora the Explorer? And I explained, well, you know, there's this big dancing scene, there's a flash mob, I was singing this song. And she said, well, you know, can you sing the song for me? And I said, sure. So I sung the song and this song became the thing that I would sing to my daughter when she was still in the womb. So every Saturday morning when we'd wake up, you know, and, and I would, I would sit there and sing this silly song from Dora the Explorer, um, you know, in my, with, with terrible Spanish and, um, and we still sing it to her to this day. So she's seven and a half months old, but every single, almost every day we'll sing, whoa, whoa. We came together. That's the real treasure. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Lo hicimos amigos. We'll be best friends forever. So she's going to be scarred <laughs> for life. She's going to see the movie. <laughs> no, it's going to bring back memories of the womb, uh, you know. But I, I, I really hold that time in my life very dearly and, and, um, and so that's why that movie means so much to me. How have you found parenthood oh i mean i absolutely love it i just i'm 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 so in love with this little person um that i get to see every day and it's all those classic things you've i've got thousands and thousands and thousands of photos on my phone i mean i just you don't think you can take so many photos of a little person who you know with a blurry arm in every shot you know and, and who's barely looking at you and just you just i just love her so much and Every morning I wake up in that moment, you know, when you, when you lean over their bed and they look up and smile at you in, in that sort of like, oh, good, I'm not abandoned kind of way and playing in bed every morning and stuff. It's just, I don't know, it's opened up a level of love in my heart that I felt was there but didn't have any way to release it, I guess. No, it's wonderful to hear you talk about that. It is, I, my kids are old now, but the memories I have of them in those stupid pyjamas. It's, it's a stage that you don't... I mean, you probably don't go to sleep in a Batman pyjamas <laughs> yeah, you know, no, now. No, no. But, but, but when you were two, you, you might have. <laughs> oh, Ninja Turtles. That's right. It's Everything. so cute. <laughs> and, and that, that, that's your child uh, yeah. wearing some stupid princess. You know, it's beautiful. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, I've still got... I'm sure if I went digging, I'd find my Ninja Turtle socks that I used to go to bed with <laughs> every night. Absolutely. Now, we are moving from uh, a children's adventure film to uh, an adult horror story for your second choice. And, and I have a bone to pick with you, Ooh, mate, all right. because I do try and do my research properly and read the films and read the books. 1,200 pages, I thank you, <laughs> for Stephen King's 22nd bloody book, <laughs> It. <laughs> thanks oh, for no thanks. Well, I mean, I'd be interested to know what you thought of it. Did you like it? Well, I, I think you are weird because in it, 
it has got a 10-page sex scene where Beverly shags six underage boys. Okay. And we need to talk, O'Kine. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, you got to understand, when I was 13 years old reading that book, that blew my mind. I just couldn't believe that there was something like that in the book. Now, you can discuss whether it is appropriate or not, the message it sends. You know, there's so many different layers to that whole scene, right? But when you're coming of age and you're trying to figure everything out, to think that you could have a story that was about people your age who were trying to fight all the evil in the world and... I remember reading that scene. T- I was, I was like, "What?" I read it. I read it ten times, just, just sitting there, going, "What the hell is this for real?" I couldn't believe it. You know, the way that Stephen King interweaves those the different lives and the different backgrounds, and having six characters. It's not easy to have to share to write something with six characters all getting a really good chunk of time together. And um, he just. I just think it was such a great, great example. Also, scary as hell when you when you're younger. I remember that was one of the videos on the when you walk past a video store that you 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 know you, you wanted to look down in case the cover jumped out and you know ate you. So um, that that book probably started me on my journey to becoming um, not necessarily a writer because that was just a more recent thing as in a book writer, but just a creator of anything, to be able to captivate an audience, to be able to surprise them, to be able to turn a situation on its head. It was really, um, it was really enlightening for me. So, so you write, I mean, in, in lots of the stuff that I've been researching, you write from your life. Yeah. Is, is that somewhere that you go or are you always going to be talking about Matt? I, I mean, I ask myself a lot that, that a lot at the moment, because sometimes you get stuck in a trap where you think, oh God, if you know, am I going to run out of things to talk about? Um, and, you know, God, there's times when you're like, oh, please, please let, can I please get hit by a car or something? So I've got, <laughs> so I've got a good story to talk about. Get divorced. For next comedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I can talk about, yeah, please get some sort of illness so I can have a good comedy show next year. Um, look, the way that I see that is when you've got, perfectly good food in the pantry why leave the house to get takeaway you know so i'm going to use up everything that i have personally and things that are happening in my life and then i'll look at um you know extending it's not that i can't it's just a different style and i've and i've this this is what i do at the moment and i certainly will will branch out eventually because i've still got a you know a 20 or 30 year career ahead of me at least i hope so yeah it's it's something that i'm more and more interested in now who are your favourite stand-ups? So my growing up, you know, it was your yeah, Eddie Murphy's watching Raw and Delirious, which as inappropriate and you know politically incorrect as they are now, um, when you're 12 years old, they were just hilarious. You know, you can't believe people are saying things like that. Um, then it went to Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. I think there was a real connection with black comedians at the time as well, being half African and feeling, you know, in Brisbane, Queensland not necessarily that spoken for in a lot of the media to suddenly have people who look like you and sound, not necessarily sound like you, but, you know, sort of, I don't know, have the same sense of humour as you and can talk about race and everything like that. That was really exciting. And then someone like Dave Chappelle, who was um, a real hero, and I got to support him when he came to Sydney and in Adelaide as well, and it was really great. I remember we supported him in Adelaide and Nazim Hussain, who's another comedian, uh, gave me a call 
uh, after the show and he said, you know, where's, where's the after party? Because Nazim had been on the early show, I was on the later show. And I said, oh, it's at this, um, it's at this big R&B super club that, uh, that Dave's D- DJ on stage days is doing a secret after party thing at. So Nazim said, do you think it's okay if Luke McGregor comes along? Now, Luke McGregor, if you've, if you've seen him, is um, you don't immediately think, oh, R&B super club is where you would, <laughs> you know, this is your, is your second home, you know? Um, and same with Nazim, you know, Nazim doesn't drink or anything like that. I mean, so like, uh, so we went out and, um, and yeah, it was just this amazing party with people like, you know, there was bottles of Grey Goose on the bench and Dave was smoking inside and people are dancing up on around him and stuff. And I, I remember like looking across to Nazim and Luke, we were all just stunned. Like, like, and I was like, oh my God, this is the club. Like, <laughs> this is what all the rappers have been talking about. I'm in the club. <laughs> I'm on a boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was such a wild, like, experience to see someone that you really, really have looked up to for so many years and to be in the same room as him and to hear the stories, you know, he gathered us around on the stage and he talked about, you know, be disruptive, be, you know, um, you know, talking about things that Muhammad Ali had said that he'd caught on to and he was saying, you know, you guys have got to do things that disrupt the status quo and, and make statements and all that sort of stuff. And then he sent us all a copy of Muhammad Ali's book afterwards wow. as a thank you, which was really, really, it was really, really nice, you know, and it's really humbling when you get to, yeah, get to meet your heroes and they are as good as you ever could imagine because a lot of the time they're not. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're a great disappointment. But I can't say that about Dave Chappelle. For your uh, song, we are moving from the 22nd book of Stephen King to the third studio album of my old schoolmates, Radiohead. You are, have oh. chosen <laughs> All right. the lead single from OK Computer, which is Paranoid Android. Oh, I mean, aside from the fact that it's one of the most just amazingly written songs, it, it, goes to so many different levels it's a long song you don't get long songs anymore you know and 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 it really has just so many different layers to it but this song really sticks to me because you know when i was 12 years old my mum got a headache and uh she couldn't really go to work and she just stayed at home for probably about two weeks and then one day when i um came home from school she was sort of slumped over in the shower, collapsed in the shower. And I, you know, she said, is your dad still downstairs? Because my dad had dropped me off uh, at, at her place. And um, and I said, yes. And I ran downstairs and I got dad and dad came up and we carried mum down in a bed sheet into the car and then we took her to hospital. And she never left hospital after that and died about three months, three weeks, sorry, later. Uh, on Good Friday. So on the Easter Saturday, it was the day before my birthday. So she died two days before my 13th birthday. And I, on the Easter Saturday, um, my stepmom took me to Injury Shopping Town to get me a birthday present. And I bought OK Computer by Radiohead. And it obviously became a album that I associated with a lot of those memories and and uh, did a lot of processing while I listened to that album. So, I mean, that song, aside from being an incredible song, 
um, was really important to me at a very impactful time in my life. So yeah, I always have a very fond spot in my heart for that song. It was written about uh, an unpleasant experience he had uh, in a bar in LA. Do you, are you aware no, of that story? No, I didn't know. So he was in a bar in Los Angeles, Tom, and uh, there was a bunch of yuppies who were doing coke and drunk and someone spilled a drink on the woman in the group mm. and uh, she got really psychotically violent and deranged. Uh, and the, the line in the song, kicking, squealing, Gucci, little piggy, Mm. So it's just a direct response to being in a bar. He felt really physically threatened. Wow. And you go, he's, he's just, uh, just a genius. But I, I need to ask you a question because it's always interested me about titles. So Radiohead, their first band name was actually On A Friday. Right. And the reason it was On A Friday was at school, the only day we could practice music was... Oh, yeah, right. On A Friday. <laughs> so they were called On A Friday for four years before they were... Radiohead. Wow. Right? Uh, and I'm just fascinated at the importance of titles and how you come up with titles. So the other guy, well, I could probably imagine how you came up with that one. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, before the other guy came out, which was, the stand-up show was called The Other Guy. Yeah. And it was about, you know, um, um, a relationship where there had been cheating involved, etc. So, so weren't you tempted to call it that fucker? <laughs> That'd be too much, too much uh, joy. I think the guy would get too much pleasure out of that. Um, I, so the stand-up show was called The Other Guy. And when it turned into a TV show, we had a huge, huge argument, long. This, this lasted weeks between myself, the other producers, the network, about what we were going to change the name to because it felt like the other guy didn't quite sum up what this, what this, you know, this news show was about because the stand-up show was all about the, the relationship that I had had in the, and the lead up to the discovery of infidelity, infidelity, etc. Whereas the TV show is the aftermath of that. So they, everyone felt, oh, we've moved on from that sort of situation. This is about rebuilding. What should you call it? And I really, really wanted to call it. And I am always regretful that we didn't get to call it this, but I'm happy with the other guy. But I always wanted to call it In Bed On Our Phones, right? Because I think that that sums up so much about where relationships are at when they are stagnant, you know? And we've, we've all been there sitting there with someone that we love and we're just not saying a word, lying in bed, looking at our phones, tapping away. And it's like, I really wanted to call it that. But too long. <laughs> so the other guy, tell me about the, um, the name of your fabulous book. Well, you know, do you want the writer's answer or the comedian's answer? I want the truth. So the truth is, I had two jokes at the time when I was writing that stand-up show. So the book is based on a stand-up show called Being Black and Chicken and Shit. It was my very first debut show um, at Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And when you're writing a show, they ask you to submit the name and the blurb, what's it about, about six months before you've written the damn thing. And I was talking to a friend. And at the time, I had two really good jokes. One joke was a joke where I talk about um, people ask me where I'm from and then I tell them and then they act like my answer isn't good enough and then I they ask me again like I didn't understand their question. So they'll say, where are you from? And I say, Brisbane. 
And they go, oh, no, 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 no. Where are you from? <laughs> and I go... Oh, God, I'm feeling I'm guilty. Like, <laughs> no, no, originally, you don't look and like I'm Brisbane. Like, yeah, yeah, and I realise the question they're actually asking is, why are you black, yeah. right? <laughs> and um, the second joke <laughs> is a, uh, a joke about how, and I still do it to this day, it's 15 years old, but I, st- I just love doing this joke, is about how I went into a red rooster... Um, one day and ordered a chicken chips and the guy, chicken and chips and the guy behind the counter goes, you know, quarter chicken and chips, quarter chicken and chips, but then stepped away from the register, turned to his left and walked behind into the kitchen and started making a, a quarter chicken and chips. And I was like watching him. I could see him through the little window and then he boxed it all up. Then he slid it through the front. Then he, then suddenly he's like, quarter chicken is ready, quarter chicken is ready. And then the same dude came out like nothing had happened. And I was like, what? What has just happened there? You know, I still say that joke because I really, really enjoy it as a story. But anyway, when my friend, when I was calling my friend Daniel Towns about what the hell I was going to call my show, he goes, "Well, what do you talk about?" And I said, "I don't know, being black and chicken and shit." And he said, "Just call it that." Like he laughed. He thought it was a funny, funny name, and I thought it was a funny name as well. So I ended up using it for that show, and that show won the best newcomer award at the Melbourne yeah. International Comedy Festival. But that show also became a really sort of um, important show for me about about telling the story that I really needed to tell and telling it the way that I needed to tell it. So when I first did that stand-up show, I was struggling um, because I, it was my very first stand-up show. I was, I wanted to say something important. I wanted to talk about the fact that my mum had died, but I didn't, I kept skating around the topic, you know? And I remember Ronnie Chang was blazing ahead in terms of sales and reviews and everyone was talking about Ronnie Chang. And I really, really wanted this to win this newcomer award, but by all accounts, it looked like Ronnie was going to win it. And um, I remember being really bummed out about the whole situation. I was just, I was just grinding, you know, and I came home one night and I did committed the ultimate sin. And that is to read my own reviews. Right. And I read a review that was a two-star review from The Age. I can't remember who Two out of three <laughs> or two out of ten? <laughs> two out of five. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, you know, up until then, I'd always gotten three and a half stars from, you know, for the show or whatever. It was a very just, you know, bland response. And I remember reading this, this show, this review and becoming furious, just absolutely like pulsing with rage at the thought of, of what this guy had written because it, because he'd basically summed it up. I just, he was like, well, if he's going to talk about this, he needs to either talk about it or stop talking yeah. about it. Don't skirt around okay. the edge. Yeah. And I remember sitting on my bed this night, this is just as the last week of comedy festival starting. And I remember thinking, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to, oh, you, you want me to talk about it? All right, I'll talk about it. I'll talk about all this shit that I've always been too scared to talk about the stuff that really hurts me and the stuff that I, you know, that I, that sticks in my mind as some of the hardest things to have to have gone through while I was 12 and watching your mum die. And, um, and so I just rewrote the ending of the show and that happened to be the week that all the judges were starting to see the show. You know, they knew that I was, uh, had an okay show. They all had to go see everyone. And, um, and from that point on, it just like changing it all, just took things to the next level. So he or she did you a favour? Absolutely. Even though I still hate them. Yeah. I, I, but, <laughs> but but I, I I love that story because you you were uh, big enough or angry enough or whatever else to actually take it on board. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to if you know one of the biggest things I learned when I was writing this the TV show um, is 
it's a quote that the, this script doctor gave to us um, who was helping us out with the scripts. He said, just remember 95% of the problems that people identify with your work are correct. 95% of the solutions they give you are incorrect. And that blew my mind as a writer, as a creative, as someone who's constantly battling, you know, opinions of producers and network people and saying, you know, no, this is right. This is, oh, you know, and they're saying, you know, you need to change this. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what they meant. And now I'm realizing that a lot of people, when they're giving feedback, don't realize that they shouldn't be giving suggestions. They should just be focusing on the problems, you know? So now that I've realized that that's the language that people are speaking in, where when they say a suggestion, they actually mean a problem, then often I'll almost do the exact opposite to what they've suggested just as a base starting point, you know, to surprise them and to see whether, you know, so they'll say, oh, we just don't know whether you, the two characters like each other or not. Can they kiss at the end of the scene? And in my head, I'll think, no, nah, I'm going to put them at the two opposite sides of the room in a packed party full of people and all they can do is stare at each other. That's what you know, you're going to understand it then and you're going to get that tension, but you're not going to get what you want because often people, you don't want to give people what they want. But but this, I mean, I've worked for a number of decades in the creative industry, a, d- a different one, and I think that's a, a miscommunication where what they're saying is, this is my suggestion, and if my suggestion is better than your answer, you're not very good <laughs> yeah, because because exactly. I'm the producer <laughs> exactly. and you're the comedian. Because I've thought about it for 10 <laughs> minutes right. writing this email. So <laughs> beat my suggestion. <laughs> that's I, it. <laughs> I love that 95% thing. So I might have spotted something that's right. So could you go away and cleverly sort it out, please? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That's exactly yeah. it. And so Great. it absolutely changed the game. So two things happened. I realised that, that, that I need to focus on the problem and I realised that if I'm going to talk about something, I can't say, sit on the surface you got to go to that point where you feel uncomfortable, where you make other people feel uncomfortable, where you don't want to, you, you, you want to swing back, swim back up, but you just got to keep diving deeper and deeper. Have you read Angela's Ashes? No, I haven't. You know, the, the Frank McCourt book. I'm about, aware of it. Yeah. yeah. That there's a scene in that where, uh, you know, he's, it's an Irish slum and he's got, you know, 11 brothers and sisters and they live in a, you know, one room and it's flooding and all that stuff. And uh, one of his brothers dies and he writes... I was pleased because we got the afternoon off school. Yeah, totally. And you go, wow. So that, that's somebody, you go, you would write that sentence and then think, well, I can't put that in because what would people think of me? Exactly. And you go, but he did put it in. So I'm telling you 30 years later about, I, I, I put the book down and sort of, wow. hundred percent. And that, a lot of that happens in my book um, right now where my character has to also admit the fact that he you know, at some point when you're watching a loved one die, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people who have parents who with dementia right now who have been looking after them for five years and who are secretly thinking, I just want you to die. And that's a really, really difficult guilt to live with. But that's why I put stuff like that on the page because it does make me feel uncomfortable and it does make me feel guilty. But it's what happens when you're 12 years old and you're watching someone degrade so badly. I love the fourth choice of my guests. You've chosen Rainbow Beach, which is in Queensland. Uh, Why have you chosen that, Matt? So I've been going to Rainbow Beach with my dad for as long as I can remember. It's three hours north um, from Brisbane. And my dad started going there when he was a dentist at the Gympie Hospital. Uh, In, you know, the 80s, he would drive out there 
um, and go fishing every single, you know, weekend that he could. So he took us as a family as well. And it's, it's just the place that as a family, we've, we've always gone. And even in the various different forms that our family has had, you know, whether it's just me and dad or whether my sister is living back in Australia for a bit and she comes with us, um, or whether it's, you know, me, dad, my stepmom, it's, it's always been close to me. We've always gone crabbing. That's what dad does when he for, goes. For someone who doesn't know, could you explain for us, and by us I mean me, <laughs> what crabbing is? Walking sideways? Right. Picture yourself knee deep in, in mud, in the mangroves, uh, at the mouth of a river uh, or in a big bay, um, trudging along holding a bag of cold, wet, stinking mullet heads and another plastic bag full of raw chicken carcasses um, and four cages that you then tie the head or the chicken into the bottom of the cage and they're set up so that a crab walks into the cage to eat the chicken but then can't get out. And so dad and I have been doing that for so long. I mean, I love doing it because I love doing it with him. You know, I don't think if he wasn't there doing it with me, I would do it. But it's a really great chance to bond with him. And it's and it's the place in the whole world where my dad and I have really gotten to know each other and connect with each other. And it was also the very basis for the stand-up show that I did, Being Black and Chicken and Shit, that it turned into this, that ended up six years later turning into a, a book. You know, the show, the book is all about my mum dying, but the show is all about my dad and my connection with him. I remember we we went out um, at, you know, you got to do it at awful times and the tide's low. And so dad's like, all right, let's, we got to go out at 2am to get these things. I mean, like who chooses as a hobby to go knee deep in mud mangroves uh, at 2am in the morning, right? Out in this creepy, dark, dim swamp. But there he is. And he comes back with uh, a bag full of crabs and um, we end up driving home and in the light, he sees that one of the crabs is female. You can't take female crabs in Queensland. So please don't report him to the feds. Okay, this was a long time ago. Anyway, so when we we're in the garage, next, like when we get home and turns on the light and stuff, he's expecting them all and he's like, oh no, I've mistaken this one. It's a female. Please don't tell anyone to me, right? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no worries. Anyways, he puts the crab on the car seat for some reason. I think he was thinking of taking it back or something but he but he left the car doors open right overnight anyway i wake up in the morning and dad's car is gone and i think oh he's probably gone to drop this crab back to the uh to the swamp then i get a knock on the door from this uh person who runs the apartments and he goes mate did you guys go crabbing last night and i said yeah why and he goes oh just there's a huge female mud crab just walking down the driveway. And I said, oh, sh like dad didn't want anyone to know about this. Certainly not the people who run the apartment. I thought, oh God. So I, I didn't know what to do. Have, have, you, have you ever seen an angry mud crab? They're not happy. They, you can't shake a crab's hand. You can't. Okay. They're, they're very cranky creatures. And, um, and so I end up getting this towel right from the bathroom and I, I run out and I've never properly caught a crab before. Um, and, and I throw the towel on top of the crab and it stops. And 
I quickly grab it from its back legs. I know you're not supposed to go near the front. And I run back down the driveway as fast as I can. And I run into this garage that we had um, where there's a big laundry tub. Now, the r- crab starts wriggling and starts snipping at me. And I can feel the f- my fingers about to go, you know, like I'm, I'm terrified it's about to take one off at the knuckle. And so I'm graced back to this laundry tub and I can see it in the distance and I get about oh, three meters away and this crab starts wriggling and I think I've got to, I've, this is it. So I just chuck it, right? I just throw it up in the air at the laundry tub. It flies through the air and then like a bar of soap in the bathtub, slides down the side of the laundry tub bottoms out along the bottom of this laundry tub. And I mean, at full speed, goes down, slides across, bashes into this huge male crab, which is loosely tied up, which then, and I swear to God, I didn't know that this sort of physics was possible. The other crab pushes off against this female crab that slid into it and it propels itself up the side of the laundry tub and out again in mid-air, the tying ropes that Dad has put on him come loose. It lands in front of me, smashes its claws together and goes, which in crab talk very much felt like, bring it on, motherfucker. Like it was yeah. angry. You know what I mean? And, um, and yeah, I kicked it. <laughs> but I'm not proud of doing that. I need you to understand that I freaked out, but I kicked it and its arms popped off. And that's what happens when crabs do that. Okay. I don't want, I'm so, I know that that's, this is not the right thing to do, but I was genuinely scared. I freaked out. They grow their arms back. All right. Please don't call Peter on me. I freaked out. Um, I ended up getting it back in the tub, but that whole experience ended up being the, the driving kind of story for the stand-up show. Wow. Which then six months later ended up turning into, six years later turned into a book. It's a wonderful story, but a vegan nightmare. I know. I'm so <laughs> sorry. There are people, there are, there'll be activists who want Chicken my- Chicken heads. Who want Did my they blood. fall off naturally? <laughs> <laughs> who want my blood. I'm really sorry. And I am very sensitive to those sort of things, but that is just what had happened. And it was six years ago. And I do apologize. So tell me more about your dad. Well, he- Came out to Australia in, I think, 1972, um, and he studied dentistry at UQ, or in Queensland. Um, and, you know, he always tells uh, the story that he, because I always I, I ask, why Australia? And he tells the story that he got a government grant, um, a scholarship through the Ghanaian government, and... Um, his options were to go study in London, the UK, Canada, or Australia. And because it, because of the time that it happened, it happened at the end of the year, but all of those other countries start their, um, university terms in June or July, right? And Australia was the only one that was starting in January. And he always talks about, you know, he says like, when you're a young kid in Ghana and you get the opportunity to go somewhere, you can't afford to wait six months to do it because things change and governments change and scholarships disappear and all that. And so he said he just he he was out and went to Australia, um, and he and then he had to go back and work there for a few years after after the scholarship. So, so more specifically, if you don't mind, uh, tell me about uh, after your mum passed away. I mean, for, obviously for you traumatizing but what about for him 
And then, yeah, that's something that I've thought about more and more, especially writing the book, um, you know, realizing how much pressure it must have been for him to go through that, to suddenly become a single parent in that, in a proper capacity, not just, uh, you know, a single parent in a, in a divorce capacity, but actually being the lone uh, carer. And, you know, it wasn't easy for us at the beginning. We fought a lot, um, just arguments, you know, the way that teenagers do, but when it's just you and him, you can't, there's no escaping it, you know, just these two guys living in this house together and one's going through this, you know, hormonal, big hormonal change and the other's grappling with the idea of having to be the lone caretaker. Um, we definitely had our ups and downs, and but it's all formed, you know, this this love now that we have that is unparalleled to anything else I have in my life and a respect and, a, you know, a real friendship that we got through something pretty big together and... Um, and yeah, now I just, you know, love him heaps and really appreciate everything that he's done for me. So Matt, for your fifth choice, your possession on Five My Life, uh, we're leaving Australia and we're going all the way to Scotland. You've chosen your Edinburgh Fringe Best Newcomer nomination trophy. I, I'm, I'm so proud of that trophy. You know, I'd come from a really successful trip and um, tour of Australia doing comedy and I went over to Edinburgh for my very first time and it was hard. It was really, really hard. And I struggled a lot. Um, can, can, can you explain how vast the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is? It's the world's largest arts festival. People in Australia might not understand. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we're, we're in Melbourne Comedy Festival. You've got 400 different comedians vying for, you know, people's sales and attention. Um, in Edinburgh, you've got 4,000 different acts on at any one time, 4,000 different shows, and there is literally a show everywhere. You walk into an elevator and there's someone juggling. You walk into a cafe that can barely sit full of people and there's some Japanese kabuki dancing or whatever. You know, it's it's just wild how Three and a half thousand different shows yeah. in 317 venues. It's mind-bending. No, it is. And, and you know, anytime you want it, there's a show. Ronnie Cheng and I were staying together and we'd just be like, we want to see some magic. 11 o'clock in the morning, Saturday, sure, there's some magician who was terrible. He stuffed up tricks. Didn't matter. It was 11 o'clock in the morning, we'd do it. But um, when there's 3,500 um, different shows and that many performers, if not more, plus so many people coming from around the world, there's also, it also becomes an absolute melting pot for um, just one hell of a super flu that really gave me perspective on how people could die from the food, you know, when you, you hear stories about, oh, I've wiped out whole, you know, whole cultures or whatever. And I'd be like, what, just a flu, just a common cold. Man, I had some days where I really, really struggled with that. But also then you've gone to a place where no one knows who you are and you've gone from playing sold out shows every night to playing eight people. And you're seeing your friends get four star reviews and five star reviews and and you're feeling sick every day and you're handing out flyers to people who are ignoring you. And it's just that smashing back down to earth that makes you really struggle. And I remember it was, I worked so hard, so, so hard on fixing my show, making it better. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night just thinking about how I was going to make this show better. And all the work paid off. Gradually, people started coming. Words started to spread. Judges started coming. And suddenly I got this nomination for a newcomer award. But I remember walking home just thinking I, I, I remember I remember I was at the end of it all I had a week left to go and my my manager told me you know you've just been nominated for Edinburgh and you know I'd been traveling so much and I had the feeling that my relationship was starting to disintegrate back at home I was sick um 
I, I was tired and I remember walking home thinking, well, this is what you've always wanted, Matt. You came here, you desperately wanted this award, this nomination, and now you're nominated. You should be happy. And I remember thinking, you know what? If I win this award on Friday when they announce it, this has not made me happy. Everything in your life sucks at the moment. And you thought that this would change everything and it doesn't. It's just this stupid block, right, of this stupid thing with, with, with the words best newcomer, you know, Foster's best newcomer on it. Um, and it was a real turning point in my life, you know. I, I really, it really changed a lot of things. I was really, really down at that time. But um, I went home. I didn't win the award. And uh, I went home and I got a call from Triple J right around that time. And they asked me whether I would like to do the breakfast show with them for the next three years. And I ummed and art about it. I didn't know if I should do it. And I didn't think I would do it, but I decided that I would to, you know, try and fix this relationship that was, that was starting to really suffer and, and just, just to stay in one place for once, you know? And, um, and so I did it and the relationship fell apart. And, you know, two weeks later, I found, you know, two months later, I found out that she'd been uh, cheating on me with my best friend. We'd all been living together for quite a while. You know, I don't have no idea how long it last was going on for all that sort of stuff, but doing Triple J was the best thing that I've ever done. The other thing I'm going to say about that award is that it's the Foster's Best Newcomer Award. There, is, a, there is another qualification. There is. It's the Foster's. <laughs> the Foster's is the brand. And the reason why I love this award so much as well is because of the color of the award. It's got orange on it and it's got that really rich blue color that I that you associate with Foster's with the, with the gold trim and the red trim and the blue. And I have a really fond, I have an unironic fondness for Foster's. I know people give it shit, but I have a very much a fondness for it because in 2004, it was the early 2005, I had, um, it was almost the opposite of the Edinburgh situation. Life was great. It was at the very start of the relationship, 10 years earlier, you know, things were great. Things were going well. I was in love. Um, my, I was hanging out with my friends. I was about to start the third year of my acting degree. Life was looking amazing. And I ended up getting into this fight in, when I was out on the town in, um, in Caxton Street in Brisbane. And it was with this guy who I went to preschool with who told me, he was mad at me because I didn't let him into a year 12 party like four years before or something, right? It was really just one of those things. And I kept saying, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm sure I would have let you into this party. He said, no, you didn't let me into the party. And he just kept going and going and going. Anyway, eventually we went outside and we ended up getting into a fight. And with this fight, I, I split the tendon on my pinky finger, fully bone exposed everything. I, I remember walking to the, up to some police officers on Caxton Street and saying, can you take me to the hospital? And they said, no, just, you know, whatever, go away. And I showed them my finger and they said, shit, okay, get in the car. And they took me. And dad would be mortified if I took, if I, he knew I was telling the story. So sorry, dad. But, um, you know, that's just life. This is what happens. And, um, and anyway, during that summer, I couldn't go swimming with my friends and we all went to the Gold Coast one day. So I decided to go get a couple of Fosters and sit on the beach and watch them all swim while I sat dry with my cast in my arm and a cast. But I have such a fond memory of that afternoon, looking at my friends, feeling so grateful for friendships, feeling so 
in love and excited about this relationship. And I just won this comedy competition. I'd won a thousand dollars. I felt like, like I was like, Oh, my, my career's on the rise. Like this, this could be a, this could be a real, a real thing for me, you know? And I felt so good. So I think part of me remembers that moment as well. When I look at that award and I think back to both the highs and the lows, weirdly, of, of, of all of those parts of my life. It's fascinating listening to you because two of your pivotal moments have been a bad review and not getting the award. <laughs> Isn't it? yeah. so, so it's not just the high spots. It's, the, it's the, the challenges that knock you on your ass that actually can change your life. Oh, absolutely. And that's always the case. It's like with stand-up shows, you know. You don't, you don't learn anything if you do a good gig. When life's good, you don't learn anything. It's only when it's hard that you start realizing how to make changes and adjust. And so, yeah, those are always the the pivotal moments that lead you on a new trajectory. And and you can always look back on them and go, I wasn't happy at the time, but I'm glad that that that, that happened, even though it was hard. Last question. Who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next, Matt? I think Corey White's got a pretty incredible story. He's written a book about it as well. Um, And he's certainly someone who's gone through a lot uh, as a young person and, you know, uh, had a life that not many people can possibly relate to. So, yeah, I think he'd be someone you might want to talk to. Well, then we will. Uh, Matt O'Kine, this has been, for me, a total joy. I can't thank you enough for sharing your choices on Five My Life. Thanks so much for having me, Nigel. Appreciate it. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, search the Five of My Life podcast. Go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.